You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. notion of experience design as a career path was entirely alien to me and frankly it was until about a decade into my career but I knew that I I always knew since I was a kid that I wanted to do something creative and I wanted to do something meaningful and I wanted to be around beautiful things. I'm Marek Pawłowski, founder of MEX and that was Louise Oakham, my guest on the podcast today. You know, it's becoming a bit of a running theme. The more people I talk to on this show particularly those who've gone on to do notable things, as Louise has, within this area of experience design, the more it becomes apparent to me that it was often a little bit by accident. Now, of course, it it might just be that the particular talents that one needs in this field also go hand in hand with a, a sort of natural modesty limits the degree to which even the really accomplished practitioners are willing to lay claim to following some sort of master plan in their lives. But I think there is something of a pattern emerging. Broad's interests in creativity, uh, a special affinity for thinking about people's behaviour, and a sense of curiosity about the world, those ingredients, combined with a little bit of the serendipity that Louise talks about in our discussion later, well, those often seem to be the key to not only being able to do experience design work, but to actually push the field itself forward. Uh, I'm going to tell you a bit more about Louise uh, and how she came to be on the podcast in a moment. But first, let's talk about jobs. Our new MEX jobs board is looking pretty vibrant at the moment. Uh, This is the place where the MEX community can find and share roles which align with those user-centered design values that listeners to this podcast, I think, will will know and love. There are 14 roles posted currently, uh, from freelance to full-time, from the south coast of the UK to Scandinavia to Australia. I think the prize for the most active poster since the last podcast uh, probably goes to Capital One. Uh, They're pretty serious about the expansion of their experience design team at the moment, and they're building out uh, an extensive London studio. Uh, At the moment, they've got three roles posted up on the MEX board, um, including a senior UX designer, a UX researcher, and a visual designer. All of those are based out of their Old Street location in London. If you head over to mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs, you can find all the details from them uh, and for all of the other roles. Um, and do please mention that Mech sent you if you go on to apply. If you're hiring and you want to get your roles mentioned on this podcast uh, and all of our other Mex channels, like the email newsletter, our social media feeds, uh, it costs £139 plus VAT. That gets you 30 days of promotion, and it takes literally less than three minutes to post a job up at that URL, mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs. So back to Louise Oakham. Uh, I heard her give a talk at an excellent local tech networking group 
Sink Norwich, where she shared some of the experience that she's had doing research internationally. And she talked about the nuances of really getting to grips with new markets, uh, immersing yourself in local culture, and, and then translating that back into better design. It turns out, as you'll discover in our conversation, Louise's path was by no means a direct one, uh, but it has given her a pretty enviable range of perspectives on experience design, from working client-side with big financial services companies like Aviva, uh, to fast-growing startups, and more recently, as a freelance specialist. I hope you enjoy the chat, and don't forget, you can find show notes with links to all of the things that we talk about, and they are at mobileuserexperience.com. Louise, welcome to the podcast. Now, this one has, I guess, been brewing for a little while. I think the original inspiration was a wonderful talk that you gave in Norwich about some of the work that you've been doing in the area of international user research. Uh, and I was curious at the time of the talk whether there was always that desire when you got into this area to be able to, to travel and explore and meet a, a wider range of users. Was that a, a motivating factor for you or just a, a happy accident? I think that most of my career has been a happy accident, to be honest. So, yeah, I mean, I've certainly, some people grow up with that kind of wanderlust of needing to go to lots of other places. And I've not felt that kind of compulsion, but it is something that seems to have happened quite a lot. So, you know, I, I for one, am delighted because I've had the opportunity to go to all parts, all kinds of places that you simply wouldn't go to if you're a tourist. Absolutely. And it must be you know, an interesting way to, to see a country as well, to go there with a, a specific research objective in mind, or at least a, a project to take on and to, to evolve and to, to see what comes out of it. Were there any which have been particularly memorable for you over the years? I remember at the, the, the Norwich event, you talked about the work that you were doing with the British Council at one point, but are there any which particularly stick in your mind as projects that were particularly important for you? Um, certainly the British Council one was was on a, it was really important for me. It was on a very grand scale. But before that one, in terms of international stuff, I had the opportunity uh, good decade before that to work on a project with Viva that took me to India for a few weeks and that was really pivotal actually that was that was a really big thing for me at the time um it was a a really significant size project and I was doing I was a business analyst at the time and I was doing all kinds of um interesting running around getting things done uh, kind of work on it and then the culmination of it was five weeks spent um on site in Delhi in their office and I think for me I mean, it was a really cool project that, you know, it was really good fun and I really enjoyed the, uh, you know, kind of the input that I could give to it. But to be able to then sort of top it off by actually being able to go out there was kind of awesome because, you know, I'd spent the last year working with these guys in this call centre near Delhi and I got to actually meet them and I got to spend a decent amount of time on site with them, uh, you know, 
going going out with them going you know going to dinner going to parties working with them we worked on a UK time scale so it meant that I basically started work at lunchtime and then finished at I think about midnight 2am something like that um and you know it's you you experience a country and the people and your work environment in a fundamentally different way if you're there for five weeks than if you do if you're there for five days or if you're there for no days and it was uh, it was a huge privilege to be able to do that so it was it was a, a really important experience and and certainly again like I say that most of my career has been quite serendipitous but I can track a reasonably straight line between that and then what I ended up doing at the British Council um, and the kind of sensibilities that, that both of those had. So Aviva, um, for those who don't know, the big financial services company um, you know, based out of the, the UK, you're saying that was initially in a role as a, a business analyst. I mean, perhaps it's worth going back just a little bit and you know, looking at, at where you feel the path into user experience started for you because it's not necessarily the the traditional route to, to start off early in your career in, in a business analyst role and, and then end up um, doing experience design work so w- was it was that the goal initially going into this or was that something which as you say evolved sort of serendipitously so definitely the latter so I'm I'm kind of one of the web 1.0 brigade in that I was sort of around I was certainly starting my working life in the sort of mid late 90s when the internet was just starting to turn into something really interesting most people didn't have email certainly it was before you get into mobile phones and you know all of that kind of stuff the notion of experience design as a career path was entirely alien to me and frankly it was until about a decade into my career but I knew that I I always knew since I was a kid that I wanted to do something creative and I wanted to do something meaningful and I wanted to be around beautiful things and so I went to university I did art history then I did a master's in museum studies and I wanted to be I was planning to be a curator um and that then gave me my, you know, something creative, um, something meaningful and something around beautiful things because, you know, you're working with with often historical artefacts and so on. And that was kind of what I thought I wanted to do. And then I, of course, you need a job. So running alongside that is then Aviva, as you said, the, the financial services company. And and on a very practical basis, you know, they were the people who kept me fed and watered for a really, really long time. And I did temp jobs there. They have sort of turned into perm jobs while I was applying for curatorial positions. Um, that then turned into, oh, actually, this this works quite interesting. And, and, um, and I ended up staying. And I think one of the wonderful things about really big organisations like Aviva, and I've seen it in other places too, is that they understand that they're investing in the the individual. And so they maybe take a bit of a punt on you and will go, you know what, you show some aptitude to do X, let's go do X and try it out for six months a year, see see if you're any good at it. Um, And so because of that, I was able to do, you know, business analysis. I, 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 the career path at, at that point was you kind of started off being a business analyst and then you moved up to being a project manager. So I moved up to being a project manager. And what that did was gave me a really broad range of perspectives, of business perspective, of, make, you know, how do you make money? How do you run a project and keep it on budget? How do you manage deadlines? Working with multiple departments that have got completely different um, agendas 
at play and how do you reconcile all of that and pulling it all together and then designing something out of that and that that designing something could be process you know like business process improvements about how to make the business more efficient or it could be rewriting kind of official letters to make them sound less like robots wrote them and more like human beings wrote them or it could be training people in how to use a new telephony system that you've designed the software for or you know any number of things and so those two ran along that kind of something creative and actually I really like working at Aviva and I really like using my brain in this really logical way kind of ran quite happily in parallel with each other for a long time um and then I had a boss called Chaminda who was like you should really be a UX person Lou because you know why basically why have you not noticed this yourself and he put me in a role where I was running the user experience team um, for the, the kind of digital area in Aviva and something just clicked and I was like oh this is what I should have been doing all the time and so what do you think were the <laughs> the, the skills which he, he recognized in you that made you suited to that role because as you say it seems like now you know from that point onwards you had found your your vocation and the role that really fit for you but were there particular things in hindsight that you think were developing from those early roles that really qualified you to take that that on at that stage that's that's a good question I should probably ask him one day what what it was that he saw um I mean I think that I think that having having some business acumen really helps and being organized really helps and seeing the big picture as well as the detail really helps and I think that I got all of those skills before the word user experience ever you know kind of figured in my professional life and then when you put that together with a kind of a creative mindset then I think that that makes you useful Um, and certainly what I've seen from some people who've come up from a more obviously creative route is that it's really hard to get the opportunity to learn the business acumen side of things, the quite hard-headed side of things. And so I already have that. And I think that it's, I think that's, that can be quite hard to teach or to absorb um, if you're in perhaps a more obviously creative environment. Uh, absolutely. I think it creates a real multiplier effect for you know some of those those core skills which are immediately associated with your area of experience design around things like you know, empathy curious mind the creativity etc when you also have as you say that sort of slightly more a hard-headed business perspective on things the the managerial uh, talents to be able to ensure that the project actually delivers it it multiplies your ability to deliver on those other things but you also used an interesting word earlier on about um your curatorial uh interests which i think is one which is is, uh, i guess sometimes a a slightly overlooked skill within experience design but there does seem to be a, a hugely curatorial role for people who excel in this area, the ability to bring together inputs from you know, multiple different perspectives, sometimes multiple different timelines and timescales as well, and then combine that into something which makes an overall difference in context to a group of people. You know, looking back and thinking about those early interests that you had in being a curator of some kind, how do you feel that has contributed to, to your work um, since then? 
In in some respects, I mean, it, in a direct sense, it probably hasn't because I am not a museum curator. You know, I'm not I'm not doing that particular job. But in a more kind of transferable skills way, I think it's kind of everything really. The ability to edit is really really important, and it's really important, I think, in any profession to be honest I think you know just thinking in the digital space whether you are you know a developer or a designer or a project manager or a scrum master yet you're always going to be taking in way too much vague information and then you have to turn it into something meaningful and comprehensible by anybody else I think the fact that I received formal training in how to do that probably in in hindsight gave me a jump start um i think that the notions of things like storytelling you know which are really important in a, a museum curatorial setting the idea of having to take you know you you have to construct a story you have to educate and entertain and inform you have to be able to do it for an audience that you have no idea frankly who's going to be coming through the doors you might be able to make some educated guesses but they're going to be pretty limited once the doors are open they're open to everybody and so you have to be able to make that experience relevant to people of all ages and of all languages and interest levels and you know any number of things and so I think that those are all of those things have a very direct relevance to what I do now it's just in a I, I just do it in a digital medium essentially yeah I find that a very interesting um, element to people I guess who are members as you described it, of, of the Web 1.0 Club. And over uh, the time of doing this podcast, you've had numerous people on who, by virtue of their time in the industry, I guess would qualify as being part of that club of people who uh, were getting into the area, often from slightly tangential positions or educational backgrounds that weren't specific to what they then ended up doing, not least for the reason that at the time, a lot of the the terms and the, the specific definitions around experience design within the area of digital just didn't exist. So there was a degree of, of people having to sort of make it up. And I always find it very interesting to see the different routes that people um, came at it from. You know, some people had degrees in theatre studies. Some people had studied uh, anthropology with the work that you're doing around art history and yet they've all come together to qualify people over the long term to end up becoming you know, pioneers of the field and thinking about where we are now and obviously we have um, courses which are emerging which are much more specific within universities to getting into what we now know as experience design and additional experience design particularly and it does sort of make me wonder whether you know, we might lose something in the variety of skills coming into this area with that more focused path that's emerging on the educational side. You know, when you reflect on that, where do you think um, we should be going with the the education routes that people take to get into experience design? Is there a value in having that that broader range of, of experiences as, as you yourself did? I think as a human being, it's really worth having a broad range of experiences. I think it makes it makes for a more interesting life, and um, you know, and and I think that that good things will always come out of it. Just as you were talking, I, I had about a thousand thoughts just rushing through my head. Um, so I'll try, and, <laughs> I'll try and sort through some of them. There's a part of me that really worries about the higher education, the contertiary education side of things, but more in a, I, I had the luxury of 
studying precisely what my heart told me to study because I didn't have university fees and I had a grant and that gave me the freedom to do something really quite esoteric and that ultimately I haven't done a job in but it was incredibly valuable and it, it and I, I worry I'm sad that the current generation of students that will be going through university what I've seen is that they are often thinking in a much more hard-headed can I get a job out of this kind of a way and I worry that people will be limiting themselves to maybe not do some weird subject that they feel really passionate about because they want to get a job in something so there's there's kind of what that that's in one part of my head another part of my head is I've seen and I've hired and I've interviewed loads of grads over the last probably eight years or so and they are a really different crop in a good way in some respects and not in a good way in some respects I think the what what they have is a a higher degree I think of thought about what they do than I have having just sort of fallen into things they have a framework and a kind of a manifesto and I think that that's really amazing they're also what I've seen is that the UXers are also great researchers they're great coders they're great visual designers and I think that's incredibly useful and really really valuable I think the downside that I see is inevitably any academic course is going to produce academic results and those academic results aren't always very applicable to the workplace so there's a degree of molding that you have to do with with new grads once you actually get them into the workplace where they have to unlearn some of the things sadly that that they do because in the real world stuff doesn't work that way and I I do wish that some of those courses had even if there was just one component that was about a real world or kind of business acumen something to go you know you're not going to be researching I don't know how to make the next generation of dialysis machines maybe one or two of you will but most of you won't be doing that thing and so it's you know just to get a reality check with it Um, I guess my final thought is increasing specialization and professionalism does no industry any harm whatsoever I think if again as you were kind of posing the question I, I was thinking about medicine for some reason thinking I I don't know I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head but is my generation a bit of a quack doctor you know we're doing we're doing great we're we're helping people it's all good but we're maybe doing it in quite an inefficient and roundabout way because we've not been trained how to do it properly and you wouldn't want to take a backward step in training people in you know in engineering let's say you want people to be professional engineers so your buildings don't fall down and you want people to be properly trained specialized doctors so that they can treat you better so in that respect I think formal education specialization and professionalism can only be a good thing. It's an interesting field in I think the sense of the the amount of of introspection that seems to go on among those practitioners, even people such as yourself. And I know we've talked about this in, in previous conversations as well, you know, about, you know, the degree to which even once you are uh, very established within the field and, you know, looking at the range of, of roles that you have had, yeah, you know, it's an enviable range of experiences that you've seen from client side, agency side, leading departments, you know, working on specialist projects. You know, it, it's a really well-rounded set of experiences. And yet to hear you 
also um, having, I guess, that concern about, you know, is there a level of quackery to it? Because you've, by definition, had to invent some of these methods as you, you went along. It really highlights the fact that a lot of people, even very advanced within their careers and user experience, I think, have those moments of, of introspection. Now, this might be a good opportunity to do our, our next tradition for the podcast, which is our show and tell segment, because I know you've looked at a couple of things which relate in to this area to, to share in the show and tell. Do you want to, to mention one of the, the references that you found and how it relates to this, this theme of, um, yeah, how we continue to think about and, and evolve our practice. And I've, I've read a couple of articles over the last week, which have been about doing, sneaking things in, kind of doing them by stealth. One of them was uh, by Jennifer Sutton, which was about accessibility. And the other was by Lisa Reichel about empathy. And essentially, both, both of them were kind of boiling down to sneak it in. Don't, don't, ask for permission to do that xyz just do it if people ask what it is that you're doing then tell them but don't kind of just just get on with it don't make a big deal out of it and And when you say permission here who, who does this permission normally reside with in your experience I, I do wonder whether a lot of UXers are quite obedient sometimes and that we ask for I mean maybe it's just me I'm quite obedient I think a lot of the time and so I I want to explain my process to stakeholders, be that, you know, the sponsor or the product owner or whoever and go, I think that these X, Y, Z things are important and, um, you know, and essentially, may I have permission to do those, please? And um, and I think that what, what I've got out of both of the articles that I just mentioned is, I don't know, a reminder to be bold and to keep my keep keep our navel gazing to ourselves a little bit. That if I think about some of the product owners that I've worked with, what they want is quite rightly for you to get some results. They trust you. They trust me how to get how to do it. They don't need me to give them a little sermon about accessibility, for example, or about empathy, or about testing, or any number of, of subjects that are very close to UX's heart. What they want is for me to delve into my big UX toolbox, pick out the thing that's appropriate and just get on and do something. And so I think I, I, I really like that about these two articles that they are that they are practical and that they are a bit of a reminder for us to maybe keep our introspection to ourselves a little bit. Do it. Have, be thoughtful. Being thoughtful is what makes us really special. Um, but don't maybe don't feel that we have to burden everybody else with our introspection. Yeah, I guess evidence in context is often the the most powerful result that comes out of those things. It makes me think about a previous conversation that I had on the podcast with Neil Milliken, who heads uh, accessibility at uh, Atos, the the big professional services company. Uh, And yeah, he was talking about some of the things that they've gone through around accessibility and uh, championing the examples that they've had of where it's had a really powerful effect not just specific to the particular modes of accessibility that they were trying to solve, but how it then had a wider knock-on effect on other areas of the project, which they perhaps hadn't anticipated. And in his experience, you know, some of it came down to a degree of sort of documentation and how you share that evidence. So there's a, a body of, of reference there that people can go back to and say, you know, this worked um, and therefore we should try this again in the future. And it, it builds that confidence. 
but also you know, just a degree of sort of celebrating the power of working in, in some of those areas, which I thought was a really compelling way of telling that story. You know, he was talking about how, particularly with some of the users that they were working with, uh, with digital products, how important a role that those digital products played in the lives of these users with particular accessibility requirements, and therefore how motivated they were to participate in uh, the research activities and co-creative activities, which allowed them to advance the experience design to a level that perhaps you wouldn't do with a less motivated group of users. So being able to celebrate those sort of things maybe um, gives you the opportunity to, to move from the sneaking it in to actually this is something that we can have boldly front and center as being a key component of the project. But uh, I take the point that it, it's not something which can happen overnight. You know, you need to build that that evidence along the way. Yeah, it's it's um you know, I mean, accessible design is good design. There's no two ways about it. And, you know, people, I think the sooner people stop thinking about accessible equals disabled person, um, the better as well. Clearly, people with disabilities are a factor in it, but also you know, disabilities can be more or less obvious. You can also be talking about just temporary or permanent cognitive kind of dr uh, kind of dip, you know, distraction can can you know make for a different thing a sunny day and a mobile phone can also make things less less accessible so you know it, it's not it, it it is it's an important subject that we should keep banging on about until people pay attention and i like that this particular article sort of advocates for just do it then do it and if anyone asks tell them what you're doing but don't force people to have to hear the ins and outs of all of it and and maybe the, the implicit thing within this is just people and certainly one thing that I take from it is people trust us to do a to do the job that we need to do in whatever way we choose to so so do it you know it's fine absolutely well a positive message to bring into the conversation and um I'll put links in the show notes so that all those who are listening can go and have a look at the articles for themselves and take a read of, of what you found. Now, the other tradition with the MEX podcast is that I always try to share something back in this show and tell segment. Would you like me to, to hit you with the example that, that I found? Love to. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> here, here it goes. So, you know, I guess picking up on this theme of of empathy and really trying to understand the nuance of emotions, um, I've been reading a little bit recently about nostalgia and what it means for, for different users and, and how some of the investigations into the complexity of that emotion have gone. Uh, and what prompted it was a blog post um, by Nathan Conti and uh, his blog Signal versus Noise, which is the, the blog for um, Basecamp. Um, piece of software that we use among the MEX team and it's pretty well known for the sort of iterative way in which it's grown over the years through uh, through user input. Um, and he was referencing um, a story of a business uh, about a guy who created uh, a business selling notebooks and it's really thrived on this notion of the nostalgia of a, a, a tangible paper notebook, even at a time when people are using more and more digital tools and the digital tools are capable of doing more and more things. And in many ways, Basecamp has come to serve 
the purpose of a notebook for some people. So this was almost an area which was potentially in, in competition with the, the business that, that Nathan Conti was running. And yet he was very interested in why this was working. And he found a piece of research at the University of Southampton where they have a whole group which has been studying nostalgia. And one of the things that they found was that um, far from the slightly negative connotations that nostalgia had at one point where it was associated with feelings of homesickness and people being lonely for things that they miss and they're traveling etc um he found that actually or that this this research group at the university of southampton discovered that one of the things that it was capable of doing was generating a feeling of social connectedness in people when they experienced something that made them feel nostalgic in some way they also reported a higher level of feeling connected socially even if they were alone when they experienced that it almost sort of tricked the brain into having that positive emotion that you have when you're in a social setting um, now nostalgia and experience design i think has sometimes had a bit of a bad rap because it's been associated with things like skeuomorphism in design you know the typical idea of using the corkboard background or the the green felt background in you know some of the the ios apps which these days has fallen very much out of fashion um and yet uh, you know i found this um an intriguingly different take on how actually nostalgia, once you understand it properly as a nuanced emotion, once you have that empathy with what it really means for users, could be used in a positive way within uh, within experience design. Have you found you know, in the work that, that you've done that you've had the opportunity to, to go into a similar level of depth of understanding some of the, the sort of emotions that uh, go behind how people are really feeling when they're, they're using particular experiences that you've been involved in designing? To a certain extent, um, I think a couple of our examples kind of spring to mind. One of them is the British Council. Um, so this is a an international charity that is all about uh, education and cultural opportunities. One of the things that it does is uh, sells English language courses um, around the world. And the there's a surprisingly large amount of emotion attached to that. You know, you would think you think of it as just being a shopping basket. And, you know, it is a shopping basket in, in that sense. But the bit that comes before it is really heartfelt. The reason that people want to learn English is incredibly varied. They may want it for professional reasons. They may want it so that they can travel the world. They might want to go to university. In some countries, um, you need to have an English qualification to be allowed to go to university in your own country, for example, which, which is remarkable. There's quite a big segment of people who, uh, of parents, who want to who want their kids to have a second language and so will pay for essentially you know private private classes and so you have this whole swirl of massive emotional reasons for why people want to do that now harnessing that being even aware that it's there is really really hard because of course that's the bit they have before they rock up to your website so being able to do something with that is really really difficult I think you can always do more but of course my emotional feeling is going to be different from yours and so tailoring it too far in my direction is going to be to, to your detriment so trying to find a path kind of through that is 
not an easy task it has to be said <laughs> yeah i mean have you found that there are any particular tools techniques that, that really help you uncover that those sort of motivations to, to that depth when you're going through projects like that one of the british counts and i remember from uh, your talk in norwich when we met a, a year or so ago you were giving the example of that sort of notion of of premium and prestige associated with the idea of having training face-to-face from the British Council versus being trained via a digital product, which was specific to a particular country in which the, the British Council was was working. And you know, I'm just curious, when, when you think about those sort of insights and others like that that you've found in other projects that you've done, are you able to um, identify the, the tools, the techniques which have helped you to get to that point that you, you know, come back to and find you, you reuse uh, on a regular basis? I think really all of it boils down to talking and listening in whatever way that you can. Um, I think for the emotional side of things, quantitative, you know, certainly looking at analytics, all that kind of stuff isn't going to get you very far very quickly. Most of that emotional stuff that we learned was not from formal research. Most of it was from chatting to staff on the ground in those countries. And it would just come up you know in in conversation and you'd be like oh tell me more so you know I mean in in that respect it's all very hard to quantify but it's totally legitimate as far as I'm concerned you know you're because you're talking to people who live in that country who speak that language who understand the whole of the you know kind of cultural political social landscape that you're operating in I wouldn't have known about the um uh, you know, the, the kind of university entry requirements for, I think it was Greece, I may be wrong, unless I'd been in Greece and it had, ha- and it had come up in conversation with people who were, were working. Certainly nobody that I can think of ever said that kind of stuff in any of the formal research, you know, that we kind of the market research that we paid for and conducted. It was all essentially direct observation, either by staff members talking to us or us being on the ground and going, huh, here's the thing. Why is it that people in East Asia leave voicemail and not text messaging? Like, why does no one, like, we all love text messaging. Why, why are people in East Asia not text messaging? Oh, because it's a real pain in the backside to text in non-Latin languages. It's just a lot easier to leave voicemail. Huh, that's interesting. Maybe we can, you know, file that away for later. So I think really, yeah, I think, I think that the, the role of, of, of kind of staff knowledge is really important. I think it often gets overlooked because it's, I think it's considered to be tainted or incomplete in some way. And certainly you wouldn't do it just on its own and use that as being the gospel truth all of the time. You'd want to kind of cross-reference it. But often, and certainly in the, in the British Council case, that was where all the really good stuff came from. Well, I think potentially it has another very powerful effect as well, but above and beyond its research value in terms of understanding user behavior, in that particularly if you're going in as uh, like an external team, if you like, be that because you're coming from uh, a different part of the company's business in a different part of the world and going in to do this as an international research project, or you've been bought in as an agency, there is that incredibly important aspect of 
being able to get everyone who's involved in that process feeling like they are a part of the team and are making valuable contributions. So being able to tap into that knowledge of you know, the expert staff that you have on the ground who are working with customers day to day and help them to share some of that and to show them how that's going to influence the project can be a really strong motivating factor to get the team firing on all cylinders, not just for the research part of it, but also then to be able to act and feel a sense of ownership of the result. Uh, and where that then guides the, the overall uh, experience design that comes off the back of it. Totally. It's, it, that, that is, certainly in my experience, that has been the key to stuff actually working is whether the, whether the staff are behind it or not. The, the, the hearts and minds have to be one. And yeah, you, know, you mentioned earlier about co-creation and I think mem- members of staff are, you know, should absolutely be part of that. And, you know, I think, Inevitably, what what any of us do is we, we operate in a change environment. We are always, you know, anything digital we're doing, we're doing new, exciting stuff that's challenging the status quo. And if you're doing that within any organisation, particularly a well-established one, and particularly one where you've got multiple locations and lots of different ways of doing things, it's, it's a threat. There's no two ways about it. You know, logically, people... And certainly my experience is people will logically say to you, that is a sensible project. We should do that. But their hearts are going, oh, my God, but what does that mean for me? Am I not going to have a job? What? But but where do I fit in this thing? And I don't know if I actually agree with you on all of the details, but I'm just kind of being polite because maybe you're my boss or that type of thing. And that's when sabotage happens, either intentionally or otherwise. Um, and I, I certainly saw this happen at the British Council, that where people's personal threat levels kind of went up, then they would either overtly or covertly try and put a spanner in the works. And by taking their giant brains and using them as your sidekick to help you with things is everybody gets everybody wins the end user wins because it's a better product if you collaborate on stuff together it's a bigger win for that individual because they understand what that thing is they feel a sense of satisfaction of having co-created it with you they understand their place within it and they are now an advocate in that country in that team you know that office or whatever and you as a member of the project well you've you've got a big tick in the box for having achieved your project goals and done it in a nice way with lovely people so everybody wins in that so have you seen differences in how that manifests in practice in the different types of team that you've been involved in because obviously yeah the, the international user research stuff with people like aviva and the british council is one part of it but you've also led um, user experience departments for fast-growing startups like epos now you've also worked agency side as well you've worked in b2c you've worked with b2b uh, companies uh, you know, when it comes to how that sort of team dynamic manifests on the ground are you seeing patterns emerge between those different areas? Does it just come down to the individual company? I think there's there's a certain amount of cultural DNA, which which is always going to be different from one place to the other. I've worked with two kind of overgrown startups over the last 18 months or so, and they are you know, very different sectors, but their attitude is really similar of being, you know, all, all of the buzzwords that, that we hear about with any startups, you know, disruptive and fast moving and pivoting and all of those sorts of things. And, you know, and, and staffed by some really hardworking and dedicated people. 
they're not actually a million miles off the the big institutions because I've seen a lot of that attitude in Aviva and I've seen a lot of that attitude in uh, British Council and I've certainly seen it agency side as well. So my sense of things is that they they have more in common than they have difference. That there are a lot of patterns and I think that you know if if you assume that just it it boils down actually to human nature. We like to be involved. We like to feel important. We like to feel needed. We all have an opinion and we like to air it. And and working, collaborating is a good thing. I've never come across. Uh, I, I mean, I'm trying to think if there's if I can think of any project I've ever worked on where collaboration was didn't make it better. And I kind of can't. I'll probably think of one in like an hour's time and I'll kick myself. But I collaboration always helps. So... Yeah, do do more of that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, I mean, I guess one of the reasons for, for asking the question, particularly in relation to B two B and B two C brands, is that perhaps unfairly, yeah, I think there is a perception these days that the the best experience design work, the best user centered design work in digital, is happening within the business to consumer area, and that business to business. Uh, departments are playing a bit of catch up in, in understanding how they can apply those techniques to improve the experience of, of their products. Do you see evidence for that in, in the, the work that you're doing? And I mean, if, if so, then you know, are there ways that that can be expedited to, to make that, um, you know, to, to equalize that between the, these two different areas? It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's a really interesting subject and it's one of my pet peeves <laughs> about b2b stuff um you're absolutely right business to consumer is seen as being much sexier and you only have to look at half of the internet to see why that's the case there's some fantastic stuff out there i think the great trick is and then this has really been the case with a lot of the kind of disruption of startups is that if you look at it though the subjects are not sexy i mean who thought that taxis would be exciting taxis are not a glamorous subject but you know you look at uber and lyft and they've done some really amazing things or you look at stuff that's going on in fintech it's still banking and stuff that's not glamorous you know there's very, there's very little inherent glamour in most of the sectors that, that we're talking about here but i think the b2c end of things has managed to transform them in such a way as to make them interesting that understandably Lots of people want to work there and there's a huge amount to be gained from it. I think, you know, it's it's fantastic. You know, you're talking about being able to influence thousands, millions of, of people around the world with, you know, your app or whatever. It's fantastic. I think that the flip side is that B2C is... Um, there are, there are fewer and fewer places to genuinely disrupt and to make a really significant difference with. There does come a point in the maturity of any product where you are just sort of, you know, that kind of refinement process where you're trying to squeeze an extra 0.1% of an uplift in the conversion of that form. And that's really hard, you know, for, for a UX or that, that, it's a lot of work for a very small amount of gain. And I th- I'll be interested to see whether there comes a point where people go, oh, actually, I could be using my brain cells to make a really big difference elsewhere in somewhere that is perhaps equally unglamorous. And that's kind of how I feel about things to, to a certain extent. I look at the business software that's out there. And, you know, many people, particularly in, in kind of 
big institutions will have horrible intranets or will have terrible expense payment forms or holiday booking systems or any number of those things, train booking systems, um, all of these things that are not very glamorous. And there are probably, there's probably freeware that you can upgrade to if you were a startup, but big institutions don't tend to buy that stuff. They tend to buy enterprise products that are scalable and are really secure. And inevitably, they're awful. I mean, they're really dreadful. And I remain baffled as to why that would be the case because you can have there's one particular train provider if you would you look at their business to consumer offering it's really gorgeous whoever's been working on that has done a good job they reskin exactly the same thing and sell it to big institutions and it's dreadful it's ugly it's hard to use it's really inefficient the error rate is enormous i'm mystified as to why a company would want to run two really different things just from a cold you know you've got two systems to run and that's inefficient for your business why not give everybody the same brilliant experience and why are people in business prepared to pay for something that's more awful than the freeware that they could get or the 99p app that they could get on their phone i'm i'm mystified and so i think as a ux practitioner if you want to get bang for your buck, go work on that stuff because it's terrible and you could do some really basic things and make it awesome. And if you did some halfway decent things, you could make it groundbreakingly awesome. And that sounds quite appealing to me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Plenty of low hanging fruit to, uh, exactly, to, to attack. Exactly. I mean, I, I do wonder whether um, some of it comes from, I guess, a, a level of um, presumption about the lack of choice that, that business users have. You know, it often seems to be an excuse of, you know, well, if you're working for this company and this is what they say you're going to use, then you don't really have much choice. So people, um, they don't necessarily have a strong motivation to use it, but they have quite a strong incentive to, you know, not disagree with, with not using it, as it were. They just have to, to get on with it. And it allows a lot of bad experience design work to continue because there's, there's not really the, the appetite there for change. But perhaps, you know, there is a bit of a cultural change going on with the organizations about them becoming more willing to embrace, you know, some of the publicly available tools or tools which are developed by smaller startups rather than big enterprise software companies, which is having a bit of a disruptive effect from inside and that actually that range of choices is going to improve and it's going to mean that everyone has to raise their level. You know, we've seen plenty of examples of techniques that have emerged uh, among consumer facing brands which have then transferred across to the area of, of business to business brands um, which start to provide those examples and, and hopefully mean that that benchmark becomes higher but it it does seem to be a slow process and as you say we are lumbered in the meantime with some pretty poor tools yeah absolutely and I, I think that there are there are lots of factors at play I think that um, if you're a business why would you want to spend money on upgrading your HR system when you could spend your money on something else? You know, there, there's, there, that does often boil down to that. Now, the flip, the counter argument is every single member of your company 
has to use that HR system to log holiday or absences or one-to-ones or any number of things. So you are making the lives of every single employee a little bit harder. And if you add up all of those little bits of inefficiencies, then that turns into an awful lot of money and you could just buy a new one. So I think there is there is an element of that unwillingness to make kind of capital spend on new things. I think companies who have B2B software know that they don't have to make it any better so they can keep it kind of crappy because no one's complaining. I think there's another factor which is often C-level executives are the ones who are being wooed by the salespeople and they're not actually ever going to have to press any buttons on it and and I've certainly seen that disconnect where people are just given you know we've decided you're having this new software oh but it doesn't do these things very well well uh you're just going to have to live without that then and and that is uh, I think quite rampant you know that that disconnect well perhaps some of it comes back to the point that you made at the, the start of the podcast about the value of having some of that business acumen within the experience design team to be able to sort of translate some of those metrics around user experience into um, language data points, which senior management are going to be able to pick up on and understand the reason for change and why that change needs to happen quickly. And maybe that means a slightly different set of metrics, tools being applied as an experience designer. You know, as you say, there's lots of things around ways you can measure the improvement in a business to consumer experience, you know, the sort of metrics people look to in conversion rates and net promoter scores and so on. But perhaps when it comes to working within a B2B environment, that needs to be a slightly more nuanced set of metrics, which show in a tangible way the kind of productivity gains that could be on the table if you can make those internal tools better. Totally. I mean, making internal tools better is not going to make for a sexy shareholder report. You know, and if you are a nonprofit, you won't get a grant to do that thing. It's not, you know, you you tend to get budget allocation for shiny new projects rather than all of those internal tools. So, yeah, I think, you know, reframing it is really important. And I think one other factor is security. Just thinking of the last place that I've been, we changed from one uh, online. We've had there have been three different online document storage solutions in the year that I've been with them and it's all come down to security that the first one was free but it wasn't considered secure enough so then there was an upgrade to a second one and then again to a third one and it always because of security concerns and I don't know whether the up-and-coming startups who are you know doing b2c stuff at the moment but maybe want to transition across have any awareness of that of just how important that is the bigger the company gets the higher the stakes are the more secure your stuff needs to be and it has to be said that the the crappy old enterprise software does tend to be pretty bomb proof in that respect yeah and i guess the more um security concerns and data leaks which emerge you know at a, a national international level in the news the more that becomes something which companies you know really need to be paying attention to for reasons of, of brand protection and, and respecting their relationship with customers so yeah hopefully that's a I guess one of those macro factors which might play into companies paying a bit more attention to that. Uh, and I think similarly on the productivity side, you know, if you look at a, a macro level across the world, particularly in um, the UK and some European countries, um, productivity 
has stagnated within the workforce or even declined to a degree. Uh, and yeah, maybe that's going to be something which prompts companies to actually really start to address that from senior management level um, and take it seriously that yeah, the tools that we're using, despite the increasing amounts which have been spent on technology and digital transformation, all of those wonderful you know buzz terms, unless it's actually translating into productivity improvements, it's uh, questionable that the value of it. So maybe some more attention will be paid to that. Um, but I, I'm curious, Louise, about what um, might come next for you. I mean, you've had this broad range of experiences in all sorts of different um, industries and uh, areas of experience design. I mean, when you think to the future and about a potential ideal project to get your teeth into, uh, is there anything that you haven't yet had the chance to do which you would really relish the opportunity to work on as an experienced designer? Oh, that's such a hard question to answer. Um, I mean, as I said at the beginning, my, my career has been one of serendipity. So I don't have like a five point plan of things I must achieve by X because I just I think more interesting things happen if you don't have one of those. Um, certainly that's, that's kind of worked pretty well for me. Um, having said that, I mean, I think... I think uh, that that bit of me that was drawn to do something meaningful, right, you know, as a, as a teenager and to work in museums, there is, that does still lurk. And I think that particularly in UX design, we have an opportunity to, an opportunity to be a real genuine force for positive change for citizens of the world. And I really love working on commercial stuff. I like that stuff gets done and I like that decisions get made and that you can see the output of what you do and you can do it pretty quickly. Um, I do always feel a pull towards non-profit as well. And I think that I would like to do more stuff in that kind of environment in the future because I think that it's, I think it would be, I think it'd be interesting for me as a, you know, as an individual to learn about a, a new kind of environment like that. But also I think that it would benefit those organizations really hugely to have our kind of skill sets in some fashion so that they can be more effective and they can get more reach and that people can, you know, whether it's for the kind of government digital services end of things for, you know, to improve services for all citizens of the United Kingdom. I mean, that's pretty, pretty awesome sounding or whether it's to make, you know, that donation sign up form better on charity X's, you know, website or something, something around that. I, I always feel a pull towards. So I think that that I hope that that will be in my future. Well, I, I wish you the very best of luck with it. Um, and you know, do please stay in touch with Mex and, and let us know what does come next for you. It'll be intriguing to, to see where it all goes next. Um, and thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. A really interesting chat. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully one we can revisit again in the future. I'd love to. Thanks for having me. It's been really good fun. Thanks, Louise. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing Louise's story as much as I did. It's one of the pleasures of doing a show like this, getting to hear all of these different journeys that people have been on. I really must say a thank you as well to everyone who's been writing in with their feedback and introductions to new people that you think 
I should interview. You know, that's the source of, of a lot of the, the guests that we're having on the show. The founding ethos of this podcast, and indeed MEX itself, was to try and bring together a community to share best practice, create new ideas. And over the 13 plus years that I've been doing this, I've found there really is no better source than personal connections and recommendations from people like you uh, who are already involved in the community in some way. So do please keep them coming. Keep in touch. You can email designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com or tweet at mexfeed. As ever, links in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more. Goodbye.